0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama.
1: Provocative research that we've all been talking about and discussing about what happens when parents have a favorite child. It is part of a brand new study in the Journal of Child Development, and it reveals that favoritism can have a negative impact on the entire family. Take a look.
0: Honey, we have an hour until the competition.
1: Even for this modern family, it's considered the cardinal sin of parenting. I like it too much when you win. Favoring one of your children over the other.
0: Well, in our house, I'm kind of your only source for that. It's on me. Go get
1: it. Run, go get it. it. This father of two endured serious backlash last September when he posted a blog saying he liked one son more than the other.
0: He's just the one I I relate to easier and... If that means he's my favorite and those are the la- that's the language, I don't think that's too evil.
1: But now a University of Toronto study reveals that a parent's preference for one child, especially when it's obvious, can negatively affect the entire family, even the child getting all the attention. It's really mainly when children perceive the parenting differences to be unfair that they're most reactive to that themselves days before baltimore ravens head coach john harbaugh faced off against his brother jim at the super bowl he jokingly called into a telephone press conference given by their parents is it true that both of you like jim better than john i do not Is is that john harbaugh Perhaps John Harbaugh had the right idea. The new research says if one sibling acts out, he will ultimately win the attention, a dynamic that could create lasting problems. No kidding.
0: No kidding. First of all, everyone should like John Harbaugh more than Jim. I'm just saying. Um, you know, it's funny to me when I see something like this because you you hear like the psychologist lady And you think, well, I guess I could be a psychologist then because this is not very hard to figure out, right? This is fairly simple information here. There's all kinds of reasons though why a parent might appear to have a favorite. Think about this, firstborn children, um, they are going to have mom and dad all to themselves at least for some time period that the next child and the next child don't. Because they came first. And if there's multiple kids, the youngest, eventually, if the rest of them leave the house like they should, <laughs> get them off the payroll, right, uh, then the youngest may have parents to themselves. If you have a mixed family, um, it could appear that a parent's biological child is being favored. Um, if you have a child with special needs, it's going to demand that you give them more Time and attention. So there's all these reasons why this could appear this way. However, none of these things I talked about, or even things I didn't, require that a parent show favoritism. Or, moreover, forget about showing it or it appearing, but having a favorite. Um, When this happens, as we heard in the mind-blowing little news excerpt there there's almost always negative effects. And it's not just on the siblings who aren't favored. And it's not just on the sibling who is favored. It's on everyone. There's always going to be negative effects. As an example, look no further than Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob. If you will remember, last week, as we were in Genesis 25... Listen to what it says at the end of Genesis 25. Well, verse 27 says that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Jacob was more of a businessman. Esau was an outdoorsman. All right, And then it tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob favoritism is going to have consequences, right? Because immediately following what we just read, we saw Esau the compromiser sell his birthright to his brother, Jacob the cheater, all right? For what? A bowl of soup. Well, this week, we're going to move down the road in life and see that not a lot has changed. And I want to say this and then we'll move forward. What you're going to read today, um, what we're going to talk about ultimately, it's not about parenting and it's not about favorites. It's about obedience to the Lord. It's about you and I making a choice to obey God. So, We move down the road a bit further in life, and in Genesis 26, verse 34, it says that when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So, refresher, remember, so Esau is, he's a man's man. He's this big hairy guy. His father loves him because he kills him animals and brings him some good meat to eat. All right. But Esau sold his birthright. And then as we see here in Genesis 26, he marries not one, but multiple Hittite women, the women that he wasn't supposed to marry. He marries those women, and they begin to make life bitter and cause all kinds of trouble for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, what you're about to see is that Isaac is now old and blind. He's physically disabled. He can't see, but more significant than that he appears to have become more and more spiritually dull. He has grown less and less and less attentive and tuned in to the Lord. So literally and figuratively, he's blind. So in spite of not only his wife's wishes... Rebecca knows God has chosen Jacob. She loves Jacob in spite of his wife's wishes, in spite of the fact that Esau has caused all kinds of grief for him and his wife by marrying these two women. Most importantly, in spite of the fact that through God's election and purposes, he has chosen Jacob to be the one through whom the covenant and the promise would be fulfilled. In spite of all of those things, Isaac is still determined to bless Esau. So look with me. Genesis 27, verse 1. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. So take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, you know, the kind I love, and bring it to me so that I can eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac, saying here, Isaac's desire that his soul may bless Esau, this indicates for us how incredibly passionate he is about this. This is more than saying, oh, I want that with all my heart. This is Isaac saying, with every ounce of my entire being, I am going to see this through. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Isaac may have had this genuine, authentic faith in God that I believe God is who he says he is. I believe God has done the things that I have been told that he has done. I've seen proof of all of these things in my life. I have faith in God. However, I'm opposed to his will. What this tells us is that Isaac had the faith to believe God was who he says he was, but Isaac no longer cared that God said, this is what I'm going to do. And I I, I just, again, newsflash here, that's going to create some conflict. When we decide to directly oppose the will of God, there's going to be conflict. And do you know who's going to ultimately win that battle? I think you do. So Nahum Sarna is an Old Testament and Jewish historian... He says this, Isaac summons from the very depths of his own soul all the vitality and energy at his command in order to invoke God's blessing upon his son. And you hear that and you go, well, that sounds good, right? That would be good, but there's just one problem with it. He wants to do this not with the son God has chosen, but with the one he has chosen. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Genesis, says we're very apt to take our measures, our measures, rather from our own reason than from divine revelation and thereby often miss our way. We think that the wise and learned, we think that the mighty and the noble, we think that the firstborn should be the one to inherit the promise. But God sees not as man sees. And you probably can hear there, Matthew Henry is really, really reflecting what God says to Samuel in 2 Samuel 16, 7, when God had chosen David to be king and Samuel goes and they bring in David's brothers one at a time. And it's not the oldest who's a warrior in Saul's army. It's not even the next older. It's none of those. It's the young one. It's David who they had to call in from the field who's out tending the sheep. And God says, you may look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. I'm looking at something that you can't see here. Friends, Isaac was willing to ignore God's word, God's promise, and God's plan in order to bless his immoral, wayward son. And through this decision, essentially what he's going to do is douse his family in gasoline and light a match. He's about to start a fire. Kent Hughes in the NIV Life Application Commentary (laughs) makes this statement at the very end of his commentary on this story. There are no heroes in this story, only sinners. And Isaac is the chief. little side note, but definitely worth you and I hearing and understanding in what we're reading here today. If you are a parent, and you or I make our children our idol, we will most certainly reap the consequences, and so will they. And I would just say to some of you in this room who are older and have walked where maybe some of us have not, um, you, you should take some of us to lunch, And say, hey, uh, I know you don't think that you're making your kid your idol. uh, But it's going to get really, really ugly when your idol falls. And I would say to some of you who are walking behind me, (laughs) it's very, very tempting all the time. But they're going to reap the consequence as well. Because see, you know that no one ought to make you an idol because you look at yourself like I look at myself and go, yeah, yeah, you don't put me on a pedestal. I'll fall off that sucker. Don't do that to your child. They can't live up to it any better than you or I can. So Isaac sends Esau on out. Go on out, kill me something, let's eat some meat and I'm going to bless you. But remember, Isaac and Rebekah are living the same life that his father and mother did, Abraham and Sarah. They're living tent life, right? Paper-thin walls. So everything that Isaac is saying to Esau, Rebekah's in the other room and she's hearing this. So what happens? Well, she calls Jacob in. She says, here's what your father's preparing to do. So we're going to head it off at the pass. And she tells Jacob... I'm going to cook some, some meat. All right. And you're going to take it into your dad and he's going to bless you. And I know he's blind, but he can still hear, he can still smell. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to put on your brother's clothes. So you'll smell like him. And when I kill these goats to cook, we're going to skin them and we're going to put goat hair on your hands and your arms and your neck. So that you won't just smell like your brother, you'll even feel like your brother. Which that makes you really want to have seen this Esau fella, doesn't it? I know they probably didn't have back waxing at that time, but Esau might have wanted to look into something. But we're going to make you look, smell, feel like your brother. And so Rebecca cooks up this meal and sends Jacob in. And Isaac at some point says, "You know, you sound like Jake, like Esau. But come over here where I can get close to you." And he feels him. It feels like Esau. Smells like Esau. And then once he tastes that food, must be Esau. Look at verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, "Come near and kiss me, my son." So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. You notice there that at the end, Isaac takes the covenant and the promise from God to his father Abraham, that Abraham passed along to him, and now he's passing it along to his son. May anyone who curse you, may God curse them. But may anyone who blesses you, may the Lord bless them. Remember, last week, Jacob is as much of a cheater... As Esau is a compromiser, all right? Jacob apparently trusted God's purpose. Jacob knew God has said, I'm the one that the covenant and the promise are going to be sent through. I'm going to be the one who's blessed. He believes that this should happen. So he trusts God's purpose. He just apparently does not trust God's plan. Let me phrase it another way. Jacob appears to trust God's ends, but he doesn't trust God's means. Because Jacob keeps thinking, I've got to come up with my own plan. So Rebecca and Jacob deceive themselves into believing that an unrighteous act is the appropriate and good way in aiding and fulfilling the righteous work of God. God's purposes and God's sovereign plan are still going to be seen through. But when we choose to think that unrighteousness is the the means to the righteous end, there's going to be consequences. So, Genesis 27, verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Play this in your head like a movie, because this is pretty crazy. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And Isaac said to him, who are you? I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he will be blessed. You know, you read this and you think for a moment that Isaac is trembling because, oh no. Um, I blessed the wrong son. But let me just toss something out to you. Do you think maybe in this moment, Isaac, blind or not, all of a sudden, it is this close up in his face that the God of all creation says, don't you dare think you can mess with my purposes. You keep trying to go around and circumvent my will, All you want to. But I'm God and you're not. I think it very well had something to do with that. The reason that this man is all of a sudden trembling, shaking, and in shambles. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And said to his father, Bless me! Now remember, this is a guy that's probably in his 40s if not 50s. And he's starting to cry and whine like a baby. Bless me, even me also, father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. Notice Isaac has already figured out who this was. Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, cheater? For he has cheated me twice now. Did he cheat him the first time? No. Because Ding Dong sold him the birthright. He didn't cheat him. He sold it to him. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Okay, here's your blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth where your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high, By your sword you will live and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will break his yoke from your neck. Now let's talk about consequences. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Last week, we talked about how God chose Jacob, not because of Jacob's purity, not because he was any better than Esau, but because of his own sovereignty. God saw something, for some reason, God decided, I have chosen Jacob. Friends, it is not our own exemplary behavior, because of our behavior or our doing, that the Lord keeps his promises to us. Remember Romans 5 Verses 6 through 8 that Paul tells us that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because God sat there and looked hard enough and saw, yo, you know what? Okay, I think for a second there, I saw they were acting pretty good. Let's go and let's rescue them. Nope. In the midst of, in the depth of our depravity, our hearts being set against God, rebelling against him, Jesus Christ came and saved us. Friends, God keeps his promises not because of our faithfulness, but because of his own. Look with me in Second Timothy chapter 2. Keep in mind, this is the last letter the Apostle Paul probably ever wrote, at least that we know of, to his disciple Timothy. And look at what he says in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. These are what we call contingency clauses, right? If this, then this. But then you get to verse 13 that says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Friends, God keeps his promises. God carries out his will, not because you and I are faithful, but because he is faithful. God chose Jacob, not because of Jacob's purity, but because of his own sovereignty. God was not faithful because of Jacob's faithfulness, but because of his own faithfulness. There is part of me that wants to know, how did God intend, like, what was the plan here if Rebecca and Jacob hadn't come up with their scheme? Part of me wants to know, what if Rebecca and Jacob had waited on God's will, God's way? What would that have possibly looked like? I don't think Moses tells us because, quite frankly, Moses doesn't know. You know what a lot of Genesis is, is Moses saying, here's what happened. There's not a lot of, and now theologically, let me explain to you what this means. Moses is telling us the story. This is what happened. But let's talk for just a second about this whole thing of what if, because don't tell me you haven't thought it. Like, well, you know, what if they hadn't done this? Well, what what would have happened? I don't know. But let me ask you this question. How many things in your life have you sat stuck because you just kept thinking and wondering and asking, what if? What if? If you and I, if we live in the what if, let me tell you what happens. We begin to lose sight of the sovereignty of God. See, the more and more and more I live in the what if, the more I stop resting in the knowledge that I have that God works for the good in all things for those who are called according to his purposes. Well, but what if? What if and why? These are two questions that very, very often get us stuck. Here's what else happens. If we live in the what if, we usually either fall victim to guilt or self-righteousness. Here's why. You want to know why we, we're either a victim of guilt or we're a, a victim of self-righteousness? One or the other. In instances like this, pure and simple, we always want someone to blame always. And so here's the thing. If I come to the conclusion that I'm the one to blame, guess what I wind up wallowing in? Guilt. And Paul tells me incessantly in Romans 8, uh, you're not a child of guilt. You're a child of victory and freedom and liberation And as far as I'm concerned, if the Psalms tell me that God has removed my sin from me as far as the East is from the West, and I have 10,000 reasons to sing about it, I'm not allowed to wallow in guilt. But so can I just confess to you this morning that I think that more often than I find myself there, I find myself blaming someone else. And that leads me to self-righteousness. And, and don't get the, maybe the, the misguided idea that self-righteousness is this thing where you and I stand on a street corner and be like, I'm better than you. Self-righteousness is very, very rarely vocal. It's about 90% of the time, it's just internal. It's things I allow myself to think. You know, it's one of those things where if you said it, you'd be like, oh, did that come out? That was supposed to stay inside. I'm not supposed to let people know I think that. God is faithful, friends, not because we are faithful, because he is faithful. But now let me turn a corner with you here and say this. God is faithful, however, this doesn't mean that there are not consequences for choosing to go our own way rather than his way. Here's what I mean. Jacob, did Jacob wind up being what God intended him to be? Yes, he did. He wound up being the the blessed son. He wound up the covenant and the promise being fulfilled through him, but he suffered consequences that at this point, you and I, we will never know. Did God intend for him to have to walk through that or did he make that choice? Let me rephrase this. God's sovereignty will often ordain our choices. But will also allow the consequences those choices bring. I want to add to that by saying this. I think that a lot of people, a lot of people, we We want to know that I have the free will to choose, but you know what i don't want I don't want the free will to suffer the consequences from my choices. There are often times that God and I, and I will tell you that I did not use the word "allow. I used the word ordain" because you and I can tell ourselves all day long that Well, God didn't ordain that, but he did allow it to happen. Friends, if God allowed it to happen, he ordained it. And I can't explain that to you. I especially cannot explain that to you when you and I are walking through suffering. I can't. But God will very often ordain our choices, but he will also allow the consequences that come along with our choices. With that, I want to repeat, if we make our children an idol, there will be consequences for us and for them. But again, I said to you earlier, and I meant it, this message to me, this story, this is not about parenting. This is not about favoritism. This is about obedience to God. Isaac's disobedience and sin led to, to Jacob and Rebekah's deception. Isaac's favoritism of Esau ultimately led to Esau's disappointment. What Isaac in his flesh wanted was he didn't want his son to be disappointed, yet Esau wound up over and over again being disappointed. And then Jacob's deception led to Esau's bitterness and anger. And then you begin going through the questions. What if Isaac had obeyed? Here's the one I think of. What if Isaac had had a very hard, awkward, uncomfortable, but necessary conversation with Esau? Hey son, I don't know and I can't explain why God has chosen your brother. But my father could not explain Why God said to take me, slap wood on a donkey, travel for two days, and take me up a mountain and put me on an altar and sacrifice me. Couldn't explain that one either. I don't understand God's purposes, but I've seen him time and time again be faithful. And so while the culture says and everything else says that you are the one that's supposed to be blessed, we're going to get behind God's will. That's one of those conversations that you know you need to wait about 20 minutes to have and you wait about 20 days and you work yourself up into a frenzy and a sweat you go to the doctor you wound up on an antidepressant cuz dear lord of mercy I just can't have this conversation but you know what when you don't it's way worse you know what I think quite possibly would have happened is that Isaac would have taught his son, rather than teaching him defiant disobedience to God, he would have taught him what it looked like to humbly worship, even in the midst of something you can't understand. Esau's heart, read it again. Read Genesis 25, 26, 27, and what you watch is the process of a man's heart hardening toward God. Esau's heart hardened toward God. Do you know why? He was following his father's lead. He was just watching his dad. I know what God said, but we're going to do it this way. Friends, worship without obedience will actually harden our heart toward the one that we're supposed to be worshiping. So what that means is that if you and I come in here on a day like this and we gather as the church and I'm singing with all my heart supposedly to God and I am am saying, whatever you ask, I'll do. Wherever you lead, I'll go. And I walk out the door and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to so much listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I won't say that, but when we confess things and we cry out things and we say we believe things that we don't follow, that's worship without obedience. It's not really worship, and our heart begins to harden Toward God. This is why David said in the midst of his confession after adultery and murder, God, I realize now you don't want sacrifices and offerings. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. You want me to obey. He says this, it's a little less famous than Psalm 51, but if you look at Psalm 40, look at what David says in Psalm 40. Verses six through eight. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Where the writer of Hebrews is talking about how Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. In verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, This should sound a bit familiar. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior said, I have come to do your will, O God, then that's what you and I are here for as well. We're here to obey. In John 14, 15, Jesus said to the disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, obey me. Obey me. God chose Jacob. I cannot tell you why. Isaac kept on choosing Esau. He kept choosing the compromiser. So really, we could just say this. What Isaac kept doing was continually compromising. And so rather than us leave here today dissing and banging on Isaac, maybe we should realize that we are all tempted continually to compromise, to settle for something less than God's best. We're tempted to settle for something other than holiness. And I would just implore you and exhort you this morning, friends, don't settle. If we love the Lord Jesus, we will obey him, pursue him, follow him. But as Paul said to Timothy, you know what? We can trust him. Because even when You and I, even when we're faithless, He remains faithful. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.